Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Hotels.com, the world's leading online accommodation site. Now, I travel a fair bit. And every time I go away, I make sure to book through Hotels.com because they provide the best prices for hotels, vacations, Airbnbs, resorts, etc., etc., etc. You want a seaside apartment in my hometown in North Vancouver? You want a beautiful rental property in surf-friendly Costa Rica? Or perhaps you want to travel to Quebec City to visit the Plains of Abraham or maybe even a trip to Normandy to see Juneau Beach. Whatever it is, this website will find you the best place quickly and with the best possible price. What I love about the website is that they have a price guarantee. If you find a lower price elsewhere, they will match it. Plus, their mobile app is super easy to use, which helps immensely when I'm on the move. So for the listeners of Cool Canadian History, Hotels.com is offering $30 off select hotel stays of $250 or more. Go to usehotels.com slash coolcanadianhistory and punch in the code LISTEN30 when you make your purchase. So that's usehotels.com slash cool Canadian history and punch in the code listen 30 l-i-s-t-e-n 30 when you make your purchase there's really no point in booking elsewhere as hotels.com has everything you need travel easy today and book hotels.com hello and welcome to cool Canadian history I'm your host David Boris Today, Season 4, Episode 4, Canadians on the Bridge, Part 1, A Star Trek History of William Shatner. Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise and his chief engineer, Montgomery Scotty Scott, are two of the most iconic characters in the science fiction universe. Both of these characters were played by Canadians, William Shatner as Kirk and James Jimmy Doohan as Scotty. These two Canadian actors helped shape the show that would become an absolute global cultural phenomenon. This two-part series is going to explore the early lives of both actors and the history of their time in Star Trek. Part 1, we'll look at Shatner. Part 2, Doohan. Enjoy. Now, instead of a suggested reading... We have today a suggested listening, because folks, 
Part 1 and Part 2 of this two-part series are written by Star Trek aficionado Cameron Smith. So instead of a book recommendation today, I will recommend the podcast Subspace Transmissions. This podcast is worth listening to for all your Star Trek talk. And if you tune into episodes 69, 157, and 181, you may catch a familiar historian, that's me, chatting alongside the deeply knowledgeable and charismatic hosts. Subspace Transmissions on all your podcast listening devices. Now, given William Shatner's 50-plus years identifying with the Star Trek franchise, and given his role as dashing, adventurous icon James Tiberius Kirk, it's amusing to consider that the actor wasn't even invited aboard the USS Enterprise's maiden voyage. William Shatner was born in March of 1931 in the Notre-Dame-de-Grasse neighborhood of Montreal. His parents, both Jewish, were descendants of late 19th century Eastern European Jews who had immigrated to Canada during that period. Shatner's father was a modestly successful clothing manufacturer. Now, Shatner's love of theater began in high school at the West Hill High School, where he performed in school plays and also became a performer in the Montreal Children's Theater. After... Shatner attended McGill University, where he received a Bachelor of Commerce degree. When he graduated in 1952, Shatner started out as the manager for a local theatre company in Montreal known as Mountain Playhouse before joining the Canadian National Repertory Theatre, now known as the Canadian Rep Theatre, where he studied as a Shakespearean actor. His first major performance was in fact at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival, in Stratford, Ontario in 1954. That same year, he received his first work in television, a role as Ranger Bob on the Canadian version of the Howdy Doody show. Literally, the Canadian version was about a Canadian forest ranger, Ranger Bob, who corresponded with the forest ranger, Timber Tom, in the American Howdy Doody show. By 1956, Shatner made his Broadway debut in the play Tamburlaine the Great. 1958 saw Shatner receive his first role in a feature film, The Brothers Karamazov, alongside actor Yule Brenner. Thus, Shatner continued his career working on the stage, on TV, and in films, though it was thought that his propensity for taking any role that came to him, may have actually hurt his career at the time. But for Shatner, and I quote, work was work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, Star Trek was the brainchild of frustrated TV writer Gene Roddenberry. Star Trek was pitched as Wagon Train to the Stars and promised to be the first hour-long science fiction series with continuing characters. Needless to say, almost every studio passed on it. 
However, Desilu Productions, that is the struggling company co-founded by Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, desperately needed a major hit, and they thought Roddenberry's optimistic, high-concept series might wow viewers. After considerable deliberation, NBC greenlit a pilot called The Cage, starring noted film actor Jeffrey Hunter as the conflicted Captain Christopher Pike. Majel Barrett as his reliable first officer, and an intriguing young actor named Leonard Nimoy as the ship's alien science officer, Spock. Filmed in the last two months of 1964, the very expensive Cage pilot screened to unimpressed NBC brass, who deemed it too cerebral and lacking in action. They also weren't too keen on that weird Vulcan fellow, But all agreed the show looked like a million bucks, which wasn't too far off its price tag, and, in an unthinkable move, greenlit a second pilot, this time, though, with an entirely new cast. Living in New York, circa 1965, William Shatner was a comfortable working actor by now, chalking up flashy roles on Broadway, as well as on TV, in shows like The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. Boasting handsome leading man looks and confident swagger, he was an ideal choice to assume the captain's chair for the Enterprise's relaunch. And, after negotiations with future Hawaii Five-O star Jack Lord broke down, Roddenberry realized Shatner was too, telling him over the phone, You're my leading man. Now joining his new castmates, Leonard Nimoy, George Takai, and fellow Canadian James Doohan, Shatner buckled down as the crew quickly moved forward with the much cheaper second pilot titled Where No Man Has Gone Before. Shot in the summer of 1965, the episode, which pits the captain against a pair of unhinged telepathic crew members played by Gary Lockwood and Sally Kellerman, quickly solidified the Kirk-Spock dynamic and successfully established a tone that pleased the NBC executives. Early into the new year of 1966, Star Trek was given the go-ahead to launch. While the colorful, thrilling world of Trek looks like fun, crafting the show and its considerable production values proved very quickly to be a Herculean feat. Tasked with shooting an episode every six days, Shatner fast realized there was no time to experiment, try out new ideas, or even waste time. This had a considerable impact on the cast, which had expanded to include DeForest Kelly as the ship's doctor, Bones, and Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, the female communications officer. As well, this meant that the entire cast had very little time for rehearsal or very little room to flub takes. These limitations ultimately proved crucial to how Shatner fashioned his performance. Recognizing that playing Kirk as too idiosyncratic or overly mannered would prove punishing under such long, intense, creative circumstances, he envisioned his soon-to-be-iconic character as being an idealized version of himself, who operated almost totally on instinct. In his 1993 memoir, Star Trek Memories, Shatner Riley states that he and Kirk were basically one and the same, although Jim was just about perfect and, of course, I am. While the production of Star Trek's first season proved chaotic behind the scenes with Roddenberry and producer Gene Alcoon frequently rewriting scripts on the fly, 
The results prove fantastic. With classic, visionary episodes like Arena, The City on the Edge of Forever, and my favorite, Balance of Terror, brilliantly showcasing the lofty possibilities of the series. The show's first year also yielded Shatner's all-time favorite episode, The Devil in the Dark, which he has long cherished for very personal reasons. Midway through his second day shooting this classic hour about a misunderstood alien creature endangering a mining operation, he received a phone call that his father had passed. Rather than inconvenience the crew, Shatner elected to finish his day's work before catching a night flight to join his family in Miami. Struggling to maintain his composure during his scenes, he found strength through the warm support of Nimoy and cinematographer Jerry Finnerman, who he credits with carrying him through the day. After returning a couple days later, the exhausted actor headed to the set to shoot the now-famous scene in which Kirk witnesses Spock establishing a Vulcan mind meld with the fearsome Horta creature. Struggling to get into his character's headspace, he soon stumbled upon a moment of hilarious catharsis. After watching Nimoy recreate Spock's tormented psychic experience, Nimoy screamed, Pain! Oh, pain! Pain! Shatner cheekily quipped, Jesus Christ, get that Vulcan an aspirin. The joke brought the house down and lifted Shatner's spirits. When Star Trek aired its premiere episode, The Man Trap, on September 8, 1966, it was met with soft ratings and withering critical response. Variety took particular aim at Shatner, calling his performance wooden. However, over the course of the season, the show gained a cult audience of devotees and led to a deluge of fan mail for Spock, which irritated Shatner to no end. And while the viewership numbers never gained much momentum throughout the first season, NBC rolled the dice on a second season. Just as stellar as the first season in regards to quality, season two nevertheless proved a slog for Roddenberry and his team as they struggled to produce their ambitious episodes on time and on budget. Ultimately, the show's creator was forced to leave halfway through the year after suffering a breakdown from work-related exhaustion, leaving Gene Kuhn in charge of steering the ship before he too bailed by season's end. In spite of the arduous toil of shooting, Shatner found relief in pulling pranks, famously hiding Leonard Nimoy's bicycle in the rafters of the soundstage, and enjoying the experience of working with his artistically gifted collaborators. Nevertheless, by the time they wrapped the season finale, Assignment Earth, no one involved expected the show to ever see a third season. And they had every reason to have doubts, as NBC wasn't exactly jumping at the chance at renewing its costly sci-fi underperformer. However, fans rallied, bombarding the network with thousands of letters and turning the tide in Trek's favor. Alas, while Kirk and crew would be back, their mission was going to be even more difficult. Determined to save money where they could, NBC slashed the show's budget and relegated it to the Friday night at 10 p.m. death slot. Then, unable to persuade the network to move Trek to a better air date, Roddenberry quit in protest. This left new producer Fred Freiberger 
in charge of cranking out a new batch of episodes in record time. Lacking the attention to detail and high-quality scripts of the first two seasons, Trek limped to an unremarkable finish in June of 1969. Shatner, for his part, was at peace with the show's fate. In the midst of a divorce from his first wife and missing his daughters, he was comfortable leaving the brutal schedule behind. You know, a reminder, everybody, you can find us on all of your podcast listening devices as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. Now, if you go to our Facebook page or website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. Literally, all you have to do with PayPal is click on it and send the donation. Or with Patreon, you can just commit to giving us a dollar or two bucks every time we post an episode. It's up to you. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please, please don't be shy. Okay, so the show has finally ended. Yet... As Shatner headed back into the competitive realm of television guest spot work, a funny thing started to happen. Star Trek began to get popular. Paramount Television, who had absorbed Desilu's assets after being acquired by Gulf and Western, pushed Star Trek into local syndication, where it began to build an increasingly rapid audience. Soon, Roddenberry's creation was becoming the sensation it had long deserved to be with fans embracing its progressive messages and utopian dream. The very first Trek fan convention took place mid-January 1972 in New York, kicking off a craze that continues to this day. Still, without a stable gig, Shatner joined Filmation's short-lived Star Trek animated series in 1973 for two seasons before agreeing to star in a live-action revival of the series called Star Trek Phase Two, which would reunite the entire cast minus Leonard Nimoy, who passed on the show. This show was formally announced in June of 1977. But then, a little movie called Star Wars happened, followed by Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Paramount, waking up to the fact that they could be sitting on a potential box office cash cow, ordered the death of Phase 2 and greenlit a big-budget film adaptation dubbed Star Trek The Motion Picture. Directed by Oscar-winning director Robert Weiss, the production was anything but smooth. Due to creative clashes between screenwriters Gene Roddenberry and Harold Livingstone, the film was shot without a finished script. Shatner remained optimistic, certain the film would deliver despite the movie's turtle-paced production speed and increasingly bloated budget. After viewing the ambitious and flawed finished product, he told himself, well, that's it. We gave it our best shot. It wasn't good, and that'll never happen again. Now, despite lukewarm profits, Paramount persisted, bringing in veteran TV producer Harvey Bennett and director Nicholas Meyer to helm a cheaper sequel. 1982's Wrath of Khan proved a critical and financial hit, paving the way for Leonard Nimoy to assume the director's chair for popular follow-ups The Search for Spock 
and the voyage home. When it came time for a fifth chapter, Shatner decided it was time to tell his own Star Trek story. Using his leverage to assume directing duties, he became inspired by controversial televangelists Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and decided to create a heady film adventure in which the crew would grapple with man's relationship with God. The picture would see Kirk brave the river Styx and face down Hell's Furies in order to save his friends. It would be full of character growth and deep philosophical insight. Oh, and rock monsters as well. The studio had other ideas, though. Slashing the budget to shreds and demanding drastic story revision, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, proved an across-the-board disaster. And while Shatner was proud with much of what wound up on screen, he has since confessed his regrets at accepting the compromises that doomed his picture. Shatner ended up saying farewell to Kirk twice in the years following, ending Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, in Peter Pan-like fashion, ordering his crew to aim for the second star to the right and straight on till morning, before deciding to return to pal around with Jean-Luc Picard in 1994's Star Trek Generations. Generations saw Kirk enjoying Shatner's favorite pastime of horse riding, tightening the link between the actor and his fictional alter ego, before sacrificing his life in order to save the galaxy. His final words, it was fun. Oh my. Of course, never to pass up on an easy business opportunity, Shatner has continued to thrive in the Trek arena, cranking out documentaries and novels, and maintaining a permanent spot as a Star Trek convention headliner. And even if he's never been able to quite wrap his head around the passionate fandom that surrounds him, as evidenced by his infamous 1986 Saturday Night Live Get a Life sketch, it's clear to the audiences that adore him the man still loves being their captain. A reminder, the second part of this episode will actually occur after the next episode because the next episode will be released on November 11th, the 100-year anniversary of the end of the First World War, so our next episode will obviously be related to this important date. But part two of A Star Trek History will fire up its engines on November 25th. Until then, warp speed, engage. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool. Stay cool.